This is a Federal News Network podcast. A memo from the Defense Department late last week seemed to point to continuing contractor work in Afghanistan, of all places. But it instructs contractors to do something strange when it comes to putting information into the federal procurement data system. For details and what it all might mean, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, this memo is aimed at the department heads in Defense Department, not at the contracting community. But uh, tell us what you read into this. Right, Tom. So last Friday, September 17th, DOD issued and made public an internal memo uh, stating that for contracts with Afghanistan as the place of performance or for a contractor located in Afghanistan, either of those, although both could apply, uh, contracting officers would use a, a, quote, generic place of performance when they enter the contract into the federal procurement data system and also into the award notices in SAM.gov. That's the system for award management. Uh, Pre-award notices like solicitations could still specify Afghanistan as a place of performance. And of course, we don't really know how widespread this will be because contracts are still being considered and solicited and evaluated, but it indicates that the Department of Defense at least anticipates a continuation of contract support um, for various purposes and reasons uh, where Afghanistan will be the place of performance. Um, This is highly unusual. It is uh, the the issue guidance that says you use a generic place of performance. And of course, one of the questions I have as a a robust user of the federal procurement data system is, if I search for generic place of of, of performance, will I capture only Afghanistan contracts or are there other places where, you know, generic place of performance? And I know the answer to that question, but typically those are contracts that are not entered into the federal procurement data system in the first place. So we're going to continue looking at this for our, on behalf of our member companies. They could be occurring in lots of dangerous places like Montana, too, for all we know, that they don't list. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is true that, that our member companies are supporting deployed forces all around the world in a lot of hot spots. And, uh, and I think it, it's, it's actually a positive thing that DOD is taking care to consider their safety as they perform on those contracts. Well, notwithstanding that it's hard to imagine how contractors could operate at this point in Afghanistan, given the situation there, this memo, my reading of it, seems to imply that it's for security reasons, so that someone can't somehow, that you can't find out who it is and where they are working, what the companies are and so forth, because that information could fall into the wrong hands and put people in danger. Is that your sense of why they're doing this? That's certainly a major motivation, and we applaud that. We think that uh, taking care of the health and safety of the workers that are working in these dangerous places around the world is a useful thing to do. Do we have any sense of what kind of work is still possible since the contractors that worked for U.S. interests that are in Afghanistan are scrambling to get out of there if they still possibly can, and there's no Americans to speak of number-wise? There are Americans still there left. We know, so right, what could we, they be talking about? Our, from our member companies that support uh, humanitarian efforts under the U.S. Agency for International Development, for instance, um, they still have thousands of identified former workers or current workers um, who they were still paying up until they, you know, you, you actually continue work on a contract until you get a stop work order. And uh, because contractors are obligated to continue to perform to the best of their ability, even under the circumstances. And we've seen that the U.S. does want to continue to support humanitarian efforts in Afghanistan um, to, to, for health and education and, and human welfare. Um, the Treasury Department has issued 
uh, guidance that says uh, it's okay, you can continue doing that without violating sanctions, et cetera. So we'll have to see how this evolves and plays out as the uh, as the days and weeks go by. Have you heard from any member companies that have work there as to the state of it and whether it's continuing? Uh, we hear from our members all the time. We have regular calls uh, with the agencies, both DOD and, and with the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, and we monitor that very, very closely. Obviously, we're not involved in the operational details. And in many cases, those are things we wouldn't talk about publicly. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of questions still being raised and answered. So it's still evolving. Um, and obviously, our members want to support the government uh, as best they can in, in, in whatever missions go forward. Probably it varies if someone's building, say, infrastructure types of projects in Afghanistan. Well, even the Taliban would like to have a good sewer and pipeline for water system. On the other hand, if they're building the ability to teach algebra to women, then probably that would not continue under the Taliban. Certainly, if you believe the news reports, uh, your logic makes sense there, and we'll see how it plays out. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And domestically, the situation still seems to be muddied in terms of what contractors are supposed to do with respect to COVID, vaccination, attestation, working in federal offices. What is the latest as we head into well, the uh, almost the end of the fiscal year? It's almost the end of the fiscal year, and we'll put, touch on that a little bit here as well. So that the big questions, you know, that there's a, a few calendar dates ahead of us with respect to vaccine mandate for contractors. And I would continue to note that the executive order 14042 that was signed uh, on September 9th doesn't act the one that covers contractors. There are two. One covers federal civilian employees. One covers contractors. One covering contractors focuses on health and safety protocols and doesn't actually include the word vaccine or vaccination in the executive order. Where we'll see those words come into play is three three data points. One is this Friday, September 24th, is the due date for the guidance from the Safer Federal Workforces Task Force. And that guidance would then be the basis of what we would expect to be class deviation memos issued out of the procurement community, probably the Civilian Agency Council for Civilian Agencies and the federal, the, the DAR Council, the Defense Acquisition Regulation Council for DOD, uh, possibly others for, uh, for other, other procurement rules, et cetera. That's due October 8th. And that would be Friday, two weeks after uh, the guidance comes out. And then those, those class deviation requirements would presumably be contract provisions that would apply starting October 15th. Tom, you've been around this a while. That's a very ambitious schedule to write guidance, turn it into class deviation memos, create contract language, and begin incorporating it into solicitations and awards as part of that process, especially with some big unanswered questions, the biggest of which is, who's covered, and who will be exempt. Well, would this be formal rulemaking in the sense that you would have to get industry input, or is this more policy development that's not really official rulemaking under the Administrative Procedures Act? Well, PSC has submitted a host of questions to uh, uh, the Office of Management Budget that we think should be considered and in many cases addressed, uh, and we've made recommendations on many of these as part of that process. But the process of issuing a class deviation does not provide input, uh, opportunity for input from the public or the affected activities. Class deviation can be issued. Of course, they can also be modified based on evolving circumstances. But there's, you know, we're taking advantage of the willingness of the government to receive input from us, but there's no formal process to do so. And the timeline, of course, would, uh, 
would be very compressed if uh, if the government were going to try to do that. Um, I think from PSC's point of view, there are three principles that we're following here, and I'll, I'll articulate those if you'll give me a minute on that. Sure. I was going to ask right, you, so, what what is the ideal situation from the standpoint of PSC and the types of contractors you represent? So we certainly think that, you know, uh, uh, vaccine vaccinations are, are part of the the panoply of uh, activities that we can undertake to beat the COVID-19, coupled with obviously testing and masking and, and proper distancing where appropriate, but also the evolution of treatments and, uh, and, and care facilities. And those are all covered in the president's six point plan, but don't necessarily tie into the questions of contractors. With respect to the contracts, we think three things are really important here. One is equal treatment of as much of the workforce as possible, both federal civilians and on-site contract workers, because this helps people work together by having consistent, similar rules and procedures. If you've got parts of your workforce that are subject to different rules and procedures than the other part, that doesn't create the kind of uh, a collaboration that we need to have to make the government work. The second is to set rules and procedures that actually help companies recruit and train and promote and retain the workforce. We're in a very tight competitive environment for workers and anything that drives people away will in fact diminish companies' abilities, not only to perform on their existing contracts, but to bid and win new contracts. And then third, we wanna maintain a level playing field for those companies that are bidding and winning and performing contracts. We don't wanna penalize companies that have a mandate as opposed to those that are exempt from a mandate, which we could then have potentially a, a greater ability to bid and win contracts. So those are the principles we're trying to apply to all the questions that arise. I would also note that there's been a popular view that this mandate replaces the attest and test program that was developed before, we think there's still gonna be a testing program because there are a number of people who will legitimately get a waiver from the vaccination requirement for either health or religious reasons. And regardless of what that number is, it makes sense to test those people as you go forward. So those are among the questions that still very much need to be answered here. Well, one way or another, we'll know soon into the next month. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And of course, the next month does bring the new fiscal year. And that is equally cloudy on what Congress will actually do. Depending on who you talk to, some people say, nope, there'll be a CR and it's already in the works. And there is a CR bill somewhere floating around that's not enacted yet. But then there's also the possibility of the good old fashioned shutdown. Thursday night, midnight, a week from this Thursday is the end of the fiscal year. And unless there is appropriations provided under a continuing resolution or otherwise, there will be a lapse in appropriations and we will have a government shutdown. And uh, you know, we're doing everything we can to, to help prevent that. Uh, but for PSC, our member companies, we do a webinar. Uh, in fact, we've got a webinar scheduled for 11 o'clock today for our member companies to go through, how do you prepare for the possibility of a shutdown? How do you prepare for a continuing resolution, which has its own uh, quirks in the contracting? And how do you communicate with your government agency customers uh, as they're getting ready for this? Because you've already seen, Tom, the idea that a week from now is a long ways away um, is only true in the imaginations of the legislators who think they have to figure out what to do with this. I don't know where this is going to end up. Uh, the chances of a shutdown are not zero and the consequences would be quite serious. And so we work hard to prepare our member companies to get ready for this. And the single most important thing a contractor should do is? Well, the most important thing to do is to talk to your, your customers, your agency customers, who will frequently, uh, 
because the government likes to pretend this is not going to happen until the last minute. They will need to be thinking about how they prepare for it. You need to get your invoices uh, updated and, and submitted. You need to find out who you're going to be able to get in touch with in case you have an option that needs to be exercised in the middle of the shutdown. You know, you remember the last one lasted for 35 days. And that's a long time. And there were deliverables that had to be received and nobody to receive them. There were options to be exercised and nobody with the authority to exercise them. These are the kind of communications that member companies need to have and all companies need to have uh, with their government customers. Yeah, all those COVID nose swabs could be stuck in the mailroom for a long time. David Berto uh, is <laughs> David Berto <laughs> is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And next time we talk, we'll know whether or not we had a shutdown. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but 
uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and 
reading your book and thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, DC, I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.